The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, the marathon cross-examination of accused murderer Robert Durst continues in Los Angeles, and we've been covering every minute of it. Court TV's Ted Rollins joins me to break down how the prosecution is doing, picking apart Durst's story. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV podcast and... Uh, this podcast, again, we are talking about Court TV history, the epic cross-examination of Robert Durst. Robert Durst, a millionaire. Uh, he didn't earn the money. He inherited it. And then, uh, according to the prosecutor, went about his life and murdered three people. Now, he's on trial for the murder of one, Susan Berman, who was a good friend of his. The prosecution theory is that he murdered Susan Berman to cover up the murder of his wife who disappeared in 1982. No body ever been found, but she knew too much, Susan Berman. And uh, Janine Pirro, yes, that Janine Pirro, was the DA of Westchester County and was kind of heating up the investigation on a cold case, uh, the disappearance of Kathy Durst, Robert Durst's wife, and uh, apparently, according to prosecutors, Robert Durst then goes down to Texas. And when his neighbor finds out too much, Morris Black, he kills him uh, before that or, or after that, killing Susan Berman and just a trail of bodies. So that's where we are. He took the stand and the cross-examination went for nine days. And we're going to take some time. We did it in the last two podcasts as well, talking about his direct and the beginning of his cross so make sure you check out those podcasts as well. Uh, but right now, I've got with me Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor, uh, to talk about the second half of Durst's cross-examination. And uh, Ted, overall, overall, was it everything you expected? More. Uh, probably too much more. It, uh, I thought it was um, he hit everything he wanted to hit and he could have done it in half the time. Uh, I think that keeping someone like Durst on the stand, I understand the strategy. This, my, in my opinion, maybe I'm, you know, I'm not in the courtroom. I can't read the, how the jury is reacting normally, but you could hear what the judge was saying. At the end, the judge was saying, wrap it up, wrap it up. And I'm just assuming the judge was reading the jury. Um, but what he got out of Robert Durst was, I'm sure everything he wanted, and that was inconsistency after inconsistency, he would characterize them as lies. You know, maybe it's kind of like uh, sometimes, Ted, when when I'm on the air or you're on the air and, and we go off on a tangent on something and then that little voice in our ear tells us rap, rap, rap. Like in our minds, like we are on a roll. We are making an important point right now. Uh, meanwhile, the the producer in the booth is saying, no, it's time to, to rein it in. So, uh, maybe that's maybe that's where John Lewin, the prosecutor, was, you know, um, in a place where he just felt like he was he was scoring so many points by, um, you know, really displaying for this jury what a what a horrible human being, lying, untrustworthy person he is. And he just couldn't help himself because uh, 
it, it's kind of easy with Robert Durst to, to find all of these inconsistencies and changed stories. Yeah, but he should have been able to read the room. I mean, this happens to me uh, on a nightly basis with my, with my wife. When I'm opining and solving the world's problems, I see that glaze in her eyes and I say, oh, got to wrap this up. I've lost the room. And I think at some point he lost the room. Okay, so let's let's get into that room right now. Um, some amazing back and forth. And what you have to realize, first of all, is that there's a history between these two, John Lewin and, and Robert Durst. It's like a, it's been his, his, uh, nemesis. Robert Durst nemesis is this prosecutor who just won't give up this prosecutor who is relentless in his chase of Robert Durst. And, and for, for the prosecutor, Robert Durst is the villain that you have to catch. He always gets away with it. I'm going to get him this time. I'm going to get you, rabbit, right? Is that where we are? Absolutely. And um, it had it played out before our eyes over this uh, trial over 18 months. And this jury has been there for the whole time. And and now it's, it's culminating. And we're going to find out, did he get uh, the rascally rabbit or um, will Robert walk again? Okay, let's take a listen now to Robert Durst going back and forth with the prosecutor, John Lewin, about... Uh, his lies and 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 what they mean and, and how the jury should interpret his admitted lies. Take a listen. Well, Mr. Durst, what you did here is instead of saying, I don't want to answer it, you said, I'm trying to remember what exactly I was doing in Garberville. And I've tried to remember and I really don't know. That's what you said, correct? Correct. So your statement is right now that that was a lie. You were deliberately lying because you did remember, is that correct? I lied to you, that doesn't count. Wait, wait, let me understand this. So lying to myself and police officers doesn't count. Can you please explain that? Lying to you does not count. Did you have your fingers crossed like under the table? So that's why it doesn't count? What does it mean it doesn't count? It doesn't count. I was working on a plea bargain with you. Okay. There's a couple different parts of this that I think are very significant and could be significant for the jury. Um, first of all, the, the fact, Ted, that he's lying and lying to the prosecutor doesn't count. I mean, on one hand, I could see... A, a juror saying, yeah, I wouldn't be truthful with those guys. They're out to get me. Um, but on the other hand, if you're innocent, um, I, I, I'm trying to figure out, is there any way that a juror can look at that and say, yeah, I would do the same thing Robert Durst is doing? Possibly in that, yeah, you put yourself in the defendant's position. And if you're being accused of a crime you didn't commit and you realize, oh, boy, they really think I did this. Maybe you do try to lie your way out of it so they stop the investigation. But to your point, um, the, the short answer is no. If you had nothing to do with it, there's no point in lying. Now, let me get to the second part, which I think is, is much more significant. And this is something we usually, tr in trials, try to shield the jury from. He's saying, I was working on a plea bargain with you. A plea bargain. Who works on a plea bargain? Someone that is going to plead guilty, admit what they did for some sort of a reduced charge or reduced sentence. I think the jury understands that. That's why we 
try not to get the whole notion of plea negotiations, uh, you know, spewed in public. Sometimes even the, the media won't find out about it. But the jury to be told by the defendant that I was working on a plea bargain? D- doesn't that show some level of consciousness of guilt? Absolutely. When this happened, um, I was floored. And he said it several times. The To me, this was the biggest mistake Durst made on the stand. Because to your point, as soon as I hear that the defendant was entertaining a plea bargain, well then, okay, the defendant did it and was just trying to reduce his jail sentence. There was a massive mistake. Um, and of course... There was no objection because you don't want to bring even more attention to it. But he said it again about five, three minutes later. He said it multiple times. And I do believe that uh, the jurors that picked up on it right away changed their mind or, or reinforced what they were already. Because, you know, in a normal case, a prosecutor can't get up in front of a jury and say, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, this defendant says he's innocent. But uh, why was he negotiating a plea for me before the trial? If he's so innocent, you can't do that. That's like, no, but here I think he can because it's actual evidence testimony from the defendant himself. John Lewin could get in front of this jury in his closing argument and say, ladies and gentlemen, he was working on a plea bargain. Why was he working on a plea bargain? Because he did it. And he's just looking for to reduce his sentence because he know he he knows that he did it, and he knows we've got the evidence that he did it. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see if Lewin um, does bring it up and is able to bring it up. That will um, likely be litigated before the close because um, that's a game changer. <laughs> that is wow. I mean, another moment in this trial that we've never seen anywhere else in the last 20 plus years, Ted, that we've been doing this. It's unbelievable. It's a, all right. Now let's get to this next one because this is like the, the Robert Durst school of law. Okay. And I would not suggest that any of you sign up to go to this law school, uh, but it seems like he, he has his own little legal theories and, and treatises that he has put together, including this doozy. Take a listen. Were you under oath, Mr. Durst, in a courtroom there? I was under oath. Do you agree you're under oath today? I do. Can you please explain to me, Mr. Durst, how either you were committing perjury during the Galveston trial when you said you were going to spend Christmas with Debbie, or you are committing perjury now when you are saying you were going to be spending Christmas on the staycation week with Susan. Saying Christmas instead of New Year's, I think would be a very minor, minor perjury. There's minor, so you got two minors. So there's perjury, there's minor perjury, then there's minor, minor perjury. Is that your position? Yes. Difference between saying Christmas and saying New Year's is very minor. <laughs> minor, so perjury, minor perjury, and minor, minor perjury. Ladies and gentlemen, and I speak to you now as, a, as an attorney, uh, <laughs> although uh, don't sue me. There's, there's just perjury. Perjury is perjury. Don't perjure yourself. You are breaking the law, whether you in your mind think it's uh, perjury, minor perjury, or minor, minor perjury. 
But, Ted, the question is, does the jury buy something like that? That, hey, okay, we understand there's perjury, but come on, mixing up Christmas and New Year's, that's just, that's minor, minor perjury. Yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Why he used the word perjury, minor perjury, and, and instead of misstatement, um, it, it, it just it just gave Lewin this softball, which, of course, he knocks out of the park. <clears throat> The, and you're going to hear that again, obviously, in the close. He is a liar, and he thinks it's okay, and he'll bring it back up with the minor perjury. It was one of those things. It'd be fascinating to talk to this jury afterwards because all of these things would be great to um, just see what effect it had. That could have had a huge effect. Or if people picked up on what Durst was basically saying, is like, hey, all right, I, I mixed up Christmas and New Year's. It wasn't perjury. It was a misstatement. That's what he was trying to say, just the way – uh, just the way he draw, he walked right into that was was horrible. It, it's unbelievable, and and it's word choice, right? <laughs> You're one hundred percent right. You know. By the way, speaking to a juror afterwards, Ted, you know, we could call him up and say, "Listen, we want to we want to bring you on the podcast," and and yeah, you, you, we'll just talk for I don't know seventy two, seventy three hours or so about the case. <laughs> watch them run in the other direction for, for this group they're they're so conditioned uh that would be a drop in the bucket for them what they've said um, i've got to think though just from the tone of this trial and everything else that these jurors may speak afterwards i mean they're going to have to speak they're going to want to speak about this uh experience that they have uh endured it, it's it's unprecedented Okay, so the first two things that we talked about here, Ted, really go to just the the overall credibility, overall credibility of of Robert Durst, which is significant, right? Because this jury is is listening to his testimony and he's denying the murder. So can you trust what he's saying? And and what the prosecutor is trying to do is establish that you can't trust what he's saying. And and to me, that's 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 a good tack. That's a good big picture attack on Robert Durst. Absolutely, because at the end of the day, you. Uh, when someone takes the stand, the jury has to evaluate the truthfulness of that individual. And that's what they do. Robert Durst is very confident because he pulled it off in Galveston, Texas, when he admitted to dismembering Morris Black. But he said he did that as a reaction after killing him in self-defense. He believes he is able to pull the wool over jurors' eyes in terms of details, etc. And, and Lewin is calling him out on, and he's, he's done it in a meticulous way. So Lewin has every right in, in closing arguments to say, I caught him on blank, this lie, this lie, this lie, this lie, this. He's a liar. You can't believe him. Um, he's guilty. And that I think that is, that's powerful. Now, the other part of it, and, and we see this um, more often in, in these cases, because usually when a defendant testifies, they haven't testified at another murder trial. They haven't been accused of murder before and been found not guilty. And they haven't given so many statements and told their story so many times. So many times the the cross-examination of a criminal defendant during a trial will focus on the facts of that case and, and whether or not what they are saying makes sense and lines up with the other uh, evidence that can be corroborated. So I want to play a little piece here where, um, Lewin focuses in on Durst's timeline because this is a different type of cross-examination. This goes to the facts of the case related directly to the murder of Susan Berman. So what did you do between 8 and noon? Well, it takes about an hour 
I get from Eureka to Garbersville. Okay, so you had to drive. You went to the bank first, right? I went to the bank in Eureka. And then you drove down to Garberville, right? All right. Doesn't take, let's say you get to the bank at nine, you just have to take out a little money, you should be there no later than 10.30, agreed? I don't know. As you're answering the questions, Mr. Durst, isn't it true that you are realizing that your timeline falls apart with every question I ask? You're aware of that, correct? You are asking me these specific questions about a very casual experience I had. I wasn't watching my watch the whole time and writing down where I was every 10 minutes. Okay, I like this type of cross-examination because now you're getting into a timeline and, and in front of the jury, you can see um, Durst struggle with this and trying to figure out his way out of this timeline that is crumbling. And, and I think this is very significant and tells us a lot about John Lewin. This is a, a prosecutor who is wholly prepared for this cross-examination. That's the key. Because, Ted, we've seen cross-examination of, of criminal defendants before. We've seen some that have lasted like a half hour. And, and from my perspective, those are prosecutors who are not prepared. Who, who, who don't know the case and haven't done the, the work and the preparation for cross-examination that John Lewin has, you know, and, and he has put in the time, the effort, and can create moments like this. Yep, it was a cre totally created moment by Lewin, and he has spent uh, months and months preparing for this opportunity, and you have to give him credit. His style, um, his, his way of, of communicating, some people love, some people don't, but you, nobody can say John Lewin was not prepared for trial and specifically for this cross. This was brilliant. He's got trap after trap after trap laid over days and Durst fell into some, avoided others, but as soon as Durst falls into this trap, he does a great job of signposting it for the jury by saying, you know what's happening right now, Mr. Durst, you're trying to struggle you're struggling aren't you you're struggling he's not talking to durst he's talking to the jury and he's saying watch this man struggle and i love the way durst said i don't know oh you got me again yeah i i love this cross-examination now the one thing though for john lewin and i don't want to badmouth the other prosecutors in some of the cases on court tv um he's been allotted the time to prepare all of this I mean, prosecutors who are in the office and have a stack of cases don't have months to prepare necessarily for each and every trial. It's just the nature of the beast. Uh, and, it, and it's the nature of the office that the prosecutor works in. You know, sometimes they, there are prosecutors that get that time for the murder trial, uh, but others may have way too many cases and, and they've got to do the preparation, but not to this extent. I mean, the amount of time and effort that went into this prosecution is enormous, Ted. And I would say, you know, the investigators did a lot of work, but this prosecutor himself, I think, has put in more time than any prosecutor in any case that we've covered. Yeah, he jumped on a plane and got himself to New Orleans so he could interview Durst um, when they took him into custody years ago. And since then, this has been his priority. 
I'm sure there are junior prosecutors in L.A. County that look down the hall and think, is this all that guy's got to do? Well, they have a stack of cases on their desk. But um, to your point, they have allowed him to do it, and he jumped all in. All right, when we come back, the big finish. We'll take a listen to more of Robert Durst's cross-examination, including the final question after nine days, the final question by John Lewin. That's coming up. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. You can ask him if he's getting Mr. Are, are you getting angry? I am getting angry. This is ridiculous. You ask me a question, and I am not allowed to answer it. Do you understand, Mr. Durst? You're not answering the question that I asked you. Do you understand that? I am answering the question. You said, Nick Shalen said, I confessed to him after dinner, and I am telling you that after dinner, we had no conversation. So listen to my question. I'm not asking you whether or not the event happened. I'm asking you're aware that Nick Chavin testified. His version of what occurred is not that you said, I murdered Susan Berman. It's that you said to him, it was either her or me. I had no choice, correct? So I cannot respond to what you're asking me. You can answer the question that I'm asking you. I could answer the question you're asking me, but that would not be a meaningful answer. Well, I guess that's for myself, the judge, and the jury to decide. So you get to answer the well, question. I'd like the jury to decide it. Oh, trust me, they will. You won't let me speak it. Okay, now this is part of the personal back and forth. And there, yes, there were moments where they where there were was humor, uh, but here this is not humor. This is Durst is angry. This is a back and forth. And the question is, how does this play? Does this play as a, a prosecutor being a bully? Or does this play as a criminal defendant or a murderer trying to talk his way out of something and trying to avoid? And, and that's the ultimate question here. But my fear, Ted, is if, if the jury focuses on the relationship between these two instead of the facts of the case, that's where things can get lost for, for John Lewin. Absolutely. When you have this extended period of time between these two going at it and, and jurors comfortable with the defendant, um, I do think they're, they shouldn't be evaluating um, the relationship, but they have, they are. And, they, and that is always going to work towards the uh, benefit of the defense. It just is. The defendant's familiarity with this jury as this moves forward um, increases his chance that at least one of those jurors is going to have a tough time pulling the trigger on a guilty verdict. Yeah, because he, at the end of the day, you know, when jurors sit in that box, you know, they bring their life view and life experience, and you don't necessarily know what it is. And there's just, there are people who are very skeptical of, of the government, of power, especially these days. There's a lot of that. I think that becomes more of a challenge uh, for prosecutors. So you could get a juror that might want to cheer for an underdog or be a little bit upset. It's like 
um, when you post a police video, you know, you can post the same video and two people will see it completely differently. Some people see it as a, you know, an aggressive police officer. Someone else sees someone trying to, uh, you know, take down a, someone who's breaking the law. And I think that and it's not the best analogy, but I think jurors bringing that perspective into the box, especially in today's world, um, could be a potential problem. Uh, for prosecutors, if you have someone who's kind of like, yeah, skeptical of the government and power and, you know, law enforcement and, and all of that. I think you're, you're spot on, especially during today's in atmosphere. You have this environment now in, in our country where people have opinions that are just 180 degrees um, away from the other side of the opinions. But in some cases, even 180 degrees from facts and, and actual you know, truth, but they stick to it and they say, no, um, they believe in conspiracy theories. They believe to your point, uh, the government is out to get people and you get one or two of them on a jury and it's game over. In a case like this, where there is this opportunity for jurors to evaluate personalities. Who do you like better, John Lewin or Robert Durst? Exactly. And I, if I'm a prosecutor, I don't want that. I do not want that. As much as you might think that jurors like you, you don't know. You don't know how they're reacting to you. You want it to be about the facts. And when you look at the facts here, there are some very, very compelling facts against Robert Durst. Now, we call this the Jinx murder trial on Court TV, and we have because of the docuseries The Jinx. And there were those statements that were made by Robert Durst that was caught on what we call a hot mic, right? Robert Durst is not in front of a camera, but still has the microphone on, and they're still recording what he's saying to himself. And some of those statements became all the buzz about the jinx that he somehow confessed on the hot mic uh, when he was alone with himself, not knowing that the microphone was on. Well, let's take a listen to some of the cross-examination related to that. Are you alleging now that you knew that you were being recorded? We're talking about in the bathroom. Yes. I did not know I was being recorded in the bathroom. And you would agree, Mr. Durst, correct, that Andrew Jarecki did not tell you to say, killed them all, of course, correct? Correct. And he did not tell you to say, there it is, you're caught, correct? Correct. And in fact, Mr. Durst, as you were sitting in that bathroom, after having been confronted with the Sarab note and the cadaver note, you actually thought when you walked in there that you were about to be arrested and charged with murder, didn't you? No. What did you think? I think, I thought, that Andrew had proved beyond a reasonable doubt that I had written the cadaver note. Oh, back to the cadaver note. So this is this is a, an interesting exchange here, a very interesting exchange. But before we get to that, let me ask you the the jinx, the fact that Robert Durst, you know, spoke at length and recorded. If that if he didn't do any of that, would we be having this trial, Ted? I don't think so because you. Watch that, you know, and we've seen this with other documentaries that have been done. You know, for everybody says journalism is dead, uh, it isn't. It's just different. And, and I think this is a great example of how um, the producers of the Jinx were able to just bring everything together. And each one of the incidents that, you know, Susan Berman, Morris Black, and Kathy Durst, on their own, there's so much reasonable doubt. 
Um, maybe not with Morris Black, but the uh, you bring them together and you do it in this way, and then you have the defendant talking and talking and continue to talk, um, and it's pretty clear there's enough there there to go forward. Yeah, and you speak about the power of, of documentaries, and, and, and how about, you know, R. Kelly on trial right now in federal court, all of that after surviving R. Kelly, uh, millions of viewers, and then there was an uproar, and then all of a sudden there's there's cases against R. Kelly again. So it is a it is a powerful uh, tool, I guess, uh, potentially, and and in this case. So let's get to what he's actually talking about. What are your thoughts about his statements in the bathroom on the hot mic when he is by himself? Do you think that they are in fact incriminating, uh, almost a confession? Yeah, I do, and I think the fact that this jury was able to see the um, the jinx in the courtroom they understand it completely because they all had a reaction to seeing it and then hearing his explanation it doesn't matter what his explanation is he could say anything i'm still going to believe what i believed when i first witnessed it watching the jinx and for that uh, there was a huge advantage that uh, the jury was able to watch it in its entirety and uh, one of the rulings that the judge made uh, among others, that did, I think, give the prosecution some advantages. It, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. So when you, you think about Robert Durst and where he is, it's, and, and I think it comes down to his personality, who this guy is. I mean, his life is about all these things that have happened, right? His life has no other meaning because he, he never worked. He didn't build anything. He didn't create anything. He didn't have a family, um, his siblings, and, and, and they've disowned him. This is it. This is all he has is this, this, this battle with prosecutors, um, these dead bodies, the disappearance of Kathy. That's the only thing that brings some level of meaning to his life in some sociopathic way. And I think that's what compelled him to talk about it, because other than that, his life, it's, it's so classic. You're a, a trust fund baby and you just have millions of dollars and don't have to do, uh, create, earn or build anything. You just you just have money and you just have to exist. Uh, so to give his existence some meaning in some warped way. This is what does it for him. And I think that that's what drove him to talk about it, to make himself seem like he's an important person for some reason. Absolutely. It's the arrogance sees through when you watch that documentary. It's all about him and his explanations of it, trying to, as you said, bring meaning to an otherwise pretty pathetic, some could say, um, existence given the opportunities. Because, you know, yes, trust fund baby doesn't have to create, doesn't have to do this, but they sure as heck can. And they have the opportunity to make a lot of difference in the world. Uh, he didn't. He smoked a lot of weed and um, did some other, you know, ridiculous things to keep himself entertained until the disappearance of his wife. Yeah. Did nothing, earned nothing, created nothing, accomplished nothing. So his life is about this. And uh, that's, I think that's the only way um, I can read him. You know, the jury may read him a different way. I don't know. So this was a long cross-examination, as we said, nine days. So there was the moment that everyone was wondering, what's it? How, how does this end? How does he finish the cross-examination of Robert Durst? Here it is. Mr. Durst, this is my last question. As you sit here right now, I'm going to ask you, did you kill Susan Berman? No. But if you had, you would lie about it, correct? Correct. Nothing further. 
<laughs> that last question could have been the only question. That would have been an int- uh, that would have been a, a much a much more risky way to do it. But you could have done the cross that way. But I think uh, Lewin uh, finished it the exact way he should have. And it was the that was the first question too, and the first answer Durst gave. It was a good way to button it up and and remind jurors um, of the beginning of this long odyssey. The the I like Zer's answer though. I do like that he didn't lie on that second half. If you had done it, would you tell me? No. Um, that's the that's the one. The X factor here with Robert Durst, the way he admits to horrible things um, with conviction. Yes, and being truthful about lying. Here's the question for the jury. Is is Robert Durst credible because he is truthful about his lies? But I think what Lewin was able to uncover during the course of the nine days is sometimes he lied about his lies as well. So he's not always truthful about his lies. So sometimes he's a lying liar and sometimes he's a truthful liar. Does either one of them get him not guilty? Uh, no, I think some one of them maybe gets a hung, hangs a jury if you get the right juror, the right person. But I would... Yeah, just, just zero. Well, I don't want to say that because if I'd have watched the Galveston trial, I would have said the same thing. I think there's a very, very small chance he walks um, and a, a large chance he's found guilty and a significant chance that this is on. OK, folks. So what you have to do to find out how this whole thing ends is, is watch court TV, because I think you want to be there for this dramatic moment, because this is a big one. This is a guy who has been found not guilty once of murder after admitting killing and dismembering the victim, but not guilty of murder. And now here he is on trial again. Uh, I've never seen someone go two for two with two outright not guilties on murder charges, uh, but it could happen. It could happen. And and to find out, you've got to watch it on Court TV with folks like Ted Rollins, Court TV anchor. When can folks watch you on the air, Ted? 9 a.m. Eastern to noon every weekday. There you go. 15 hours a week, Ted. 15 hours a week. All right. Ted Rollins, Core TV anchor, joining us here on the podcast. When we come back, uh, I'm going to put a little perspective on this in terms of uh, historical where it falls because uh, nine days uh, is it ties the record for, for cases that I've covered, at least, and, and that I can recall. Um, and that is Juan Martinez, who cross-examined Jody Arias for nine days. So when we come back, I'll, I'll do that comparison and, and see where they line up and, and, and maybe give us an indication of how this whole thing ends. That's coming up next, right here on the Court TV Podcast. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. And you would acknowledge that that stabbing was with the knife, right? Yes. And according to your version of events, you would acknowledge that that stabbing was after the shooting, according to you, right? I don't, yes, I don't remember. I'm, I, I'm not asking you if you remember, ma'am. I'm asking if you acknowledge that it would be you that did it, correct? Yes. And you would acknowledge that 
a lot of the stab wounds, and if you want, we can count them together, including the ones to the head, or to the back of the head, and to the back of the torso, correct? Okay. Well, no, I don't count them. I don't know. I'll just take your word for it. Would you like to take a look at the photograph? <laughs> no. The legendary Juan Martinez cross-examined Jody Arias for nine days, and and... It was unbelievable. It, it was an unreal moment. I never thought I would ever, ever in, in the rest of my career covering trials across the country have a situation where someone is cross-examined for that amount of time and becomes that epic. But it happened with John Lewin and Robert Durst, uh, basically tying the record. It's an unofficial record, but nine days of cross-examination. I mean, that's a long... There are death penalty trials that I've covered that were shorter than that from... from Open from jury selection to you've been sentenced to death by the jury have been quicker than that. So for nine days, just on the cross-examination of one witness, the defendant, it's, it's really amazing. So from my perspective, while the length of time was the same, a lot else was very, very different in, in the approach. Juan Martinez was one speed it was just intense and confrontational from start to finish for nine straight days there was there was no range of emotion or tone in the courtroom it was just boom 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 for nine days and i remember it when all that was happening with juan martinez you know people were were some people were saying he's being too harsh He's beating her up too much. He's making her sympathetic. You know, he he made her cry on the witness stand. She was crying on the way. She broke down. It was relentless. He did not hold back at all. And it was such an intensity like I've never seen before. Now, John Lewin and Robert Durst for nine days, much different. There were moments like that. But even just the way it was set up, like Juan Martinez was walking around and storming around that, that courtroom, around the well of the courtroom, approaching her, getting up close next to her, pointing his finger, making her stand up and do things. It was, it was unreal. Well, John Lewin, and we're in this COVID world, things are uh, much more regimented. John Lewin's sitting for the cross-examination. And it's almost like a sit-down conversation that they were having for much of the nine days. It's just a back and forth conversation. Sometimes not. It's almost as if no one else was in the room. They were just talking. It was it was different. It was way different. So first of all, to to see the range where they have moments where they are are laughing and joking, and moments where he's kind of zinging it at at uh, Lewin, and Lewin is going back at him. Um, those moments didn't necessarily exist in the Juan Martinez, Jody Arias battle. Now, ultimately, all the people who were afraid that Juan Martinez was, was too tough on Jody Arias, um, they were wrong because the, the 12 people spoke and found her guilty. And 11 out of 12, 11 out of 12 were willing uh, to recommend the death sentence. She didn't get the death sentence because you need 12 in Arizona. So 11 out of 12 were recommending death. So it was an overall, it was a, overwhelming victory for Juan Martinez and, and the way he cross-examined Jody Arias. So now let's, let's look at what's happening here. We're getting the same sort of complaints from people that John Lewin is bullying, that he has taken too much time. Why is he doing this? 
He's beating a dead horse. Now he hasn't been he hasn't been accused of, of killing a horse. Three people, but no horse uh, involved. So in in this case, the same types of complaints are coming from from viewers, and I always take them into consideration because I consider viewers the thirteenth juror. You know, they're ordin- ordinary, regular folks who who don't have a a a stake in the case and could very well be sitting on a jury, and I, I think they're wrong also. I do. I really think they're wrong also, because at the end of the day, when the jury deliberates, they they take a step away from that, and. It's just up to them to decide, and they have to look at each other and say, okay, yeah, yeah, maybe it was long, maybe it was a little intense, it was a little harsh, or, you know, we heard the same thing over and over again, but it doesn't change the facts. And, and the ability of John Lewin to break apart timelines and, and prove the lies and, and to do all of that, even if it, if it takes nine days to do it and you do it over and over and over and over again, I don't think that ends up giving him a break, that you try a case and you prove him to be such a liar that a jury will say, oh, you know, okay, we get it. He's a liar. Now I'm going to find him not guilty. So I I think Lewin did his job. I think if he didn't do it the way he did it, um, he would have regrets that um, he didn't do everything he could. Because a lot of prosecutors, and I believe this is to be true of John Lewin, is you, you feel like you're carrying a burden and a responsibility that the only thing that stands between murderers walking around and being locked up for what they did is you doing your job in the courtroom. So he knows in his heart and he believes that Robert Durst got away with the murder of his wife, Kathy, got away with the murder of Morris Black in Texas, and and this is it. This is it. This is the only chance. I don't care if he's 150 years old. And, and, you know, is, has oxygen attached to him. This is an opportunity to bring justice, to bring justice. And I, I've, I've got to think that's where John Lewin's heart is, that he's a, a prosecutor's prosecutor, you know, someone who, who takes the job and does the job. And always remember, prosecutors make a lot less money than they could if they left the prosecutor's office and went into private practice. They'd make a lot more money. So you got to be doing it for another reason. And I think that's uh, what, what's in John Lewin's mind. And I think uh, it, it, he did what he had to do. Different than Juan Martinez, but I think in the end will be just as effective. Okay, folks, as I mentioned, make sure you tune into Court TV. You want to see this verdict. You absolutely do. If you have a digital antenna, we're available via digital antenna. Rescan it if you can't find Court TV. Of course, go to CourtTV.com, incredible website, and check the show notes here. We'll have links uh, to all of the uh, issues and and moments in the trial uh, that you would want to see. So make sure you do that as well. That's it for this week. I wonder what's in store for next week. We know it won't be the cross-examination of Robert Durst. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.